sitting number two in the golf stat rankings and you know I, I'm on watch lists and like I have all this pressure and now I'm three over through four how am I going to respond to that well you know luckily I had done some preparation uh for how I'd feel and uh I was able to correct it and finish the tournament in the top 10. Today, we are joined by Will Knaut. Will just finished playing college golf at Carnegie Mellon, where he double majored in physics and math. Will is going to go on and pursue his PhD at Columbia. While in college, Will averaged 76.2 as a freshman and improved that stroke average to 71 by his senior year while going on to become the number one ranked D3 golfer in America. Additionally, Will won two tournaments his senior year and received the 2022 Byron Nelson Award. On top of all of that, Will's developed several machine learning tools in order to help analyze golf strategy better. Why don't you walk us through how you started playing golf and what got you into competitive golf? Yeah, so how I started playing golf is actually a bit of a funny story, a bit of a coincidence. So my mom's side of the family grew up in northern Wisconsin. Uh, 150 years ago, they were like logging barons. So my grandparents were like, it's time for the kids to see uh, this historical site. It was an old logging camp. Uh, we went there. It was totally closed. Like we couldn't go into the museum or anything, but it was on a golf course. So eight-year-old me was like, mom, dad, what are they doing? So they told me uh, about golf. Neither of them play. Uh, no one in my family plays, but we went in there. There was a super nice guy behind the desk of the shop, Mike. Um, he gave me a three iron and some balls to take to the range, and I just started hitting them. I kind of fell in love immediately. Uh, then from there, my parents just started uh, dropping me off at the golf course at 6 a.m. every morning in the summer, pick me up when it gets dark. And I just, I just play all day. And then uh, as far as competitive golf, that just came from, you know, you play enough at your golf course and people are like, hey, you can kind of play a little bit. Have you ever played these tournaments? Uh, so we had this thing around where I live called, back in the day, it was the NCPGA. Now it's the Gap Central. Uh, and there were these little junior tournaments for $8.00 one day uh $8 golf tournaments that you could go play and uh I grew up on those I played those from like 2010 through 2017 like that was that was my first introduction to competitive golf and playing in those tournaments uh it sounds like those are like smaller events um mm -hmm. what what was that like and did you play like anything bigger than that like did you get into AJGAs or anything like that? Or was it just those types of events and then playing in something like that? Did it help boost your confidence? What did that do for your game, you think? Yeah, so it, AJGA, I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of the AJGA until I was like about to be a senior in high school. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like I didn't know what the AJGA was. Like even as a pretty good golfer growing up in the middle of nowhere, that information didn't reach us. And uh, by the time it did, geez, 
I looked at the prices and we just like couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford the travel. Uh, there would be no one to travel with me. So it kind of like wasn't even an option. Now, I played a couple of slightly bigger junior tournaments. Uh, like I played I played one AJGA qualifier. Um, I played I played a couple PGA junior series events. Uh, I played like two IJGTs. I mean, it was it was fine, but like most of the most of the tournament golf that I was playing uh, was actually that NCPGA stuff like all the way through. Um, I definitely learned something new when I played in the bigger tournaments, you know, when I was 15 or 16 or something and had to play from 7,200 yards for the first time. That was an eye opener. Um, but in in terms of what the smaller tournaments did for me uh, is it got me like it got me comfortable at least having a scorecard in hand. I think I think that's a big thing. Uh, the biggest thing that like holds people back, in my opinion, from being good competitive golfers is just uh, not understanding that there is no difference between competitive golf and normal golf because it feels so different. You're playing the same game and uh, whatever you can do to make it feel relatively the same is good and that just requires like playing a lot of tournament golf so i think that was the big benefit like having a scorecard in hand having some guy that like i'm trying to beat and i'm like keeping my score against his trying to like figure out what i need to do to win that tournament right getting used to all that uh i think that was really good and i could you know be in the hunt every single week playing those eight dollar tournaments and so what are some of the things that you do to make tournament golf more like uh, a casual round? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a very interesting question because on one level, you can do a lot of things. There are a lot of things you can do. Uh, on another level, there really isn't anything you can do, right? Because your body and your mind are going to feel like how they're going to feel. And you don't necessarily have a lot of control over that. Um, but there are things that you can do to like to help incremental things to put yourself in the position. So like I said, like, I think a prerequisite is playing a lot of tournament golf and just getting used to that. Like one of the things that made me get a lot better in college was just that we had a tournament every couple weeks, right? You get used to traveling, you get used to playing. Um, so that that's kind of a prerequisite. You you just have to put yourself in the heat, even if it's not a tournament, like playing for something against your buddies that are the same like skill level as you, playing for something where strokes feel like they have consequences. Um, beyond that, I think it becomes a lot about controlling your environment. And that means like before, during, after the round. Um so, you know, we'll talk about before the round, like what are some things you can do? Um, you can make sure that you're in sort of the same headspace that you're normally in, uh, which means like whatever routines you normally have, like if you normally eat a certain thing for breakfast, eat that. If you normally like watch some TV in the morning, like do that, do whatever you normally do. 
Uh, and like, if necessary, you can throw in some meditation in there. I've done that and it's, it's really helpful. Um, you know, make sure that the days leading up you're eating good food, you're sleeping well. I mean, you know, they're very simple things you can do before the round, uh, making sure you stretch, uh, stretch plenty in the days leading up and the day of like, make sure your body feels decent. Um, and these are all just things to like, you know, connect your mind and body to normalcy. Uh, that way things aren't jumping out at you and giving you mental red flags, which then like creep in to what you're thinking and feeling on the course, if that makes sense. Um, and then during the round, I would say uh, the biggest thing is like being able, like practicing uh, managing your emotions and expectations as things progress. Um, uh, that's a big buzzword right now, managing your expectations. Uh, but I think, you know, managing your expectations and managing your emotions really go hand in hand. And that's like one side of it that I think is really important to emphasize. Like you will play better golf if you understand that your wedge shot from a hundred yards to 18 feet was honestly a solid golf shot, you know, uh, you know, there, there are just things like that that you can carry through with you uh, during your round to, like, prevent you from ever, like, leaving that, like, good headspace that you set yourself up for. Um, and then after the round, you know, you want to debrief to some extent, and then you want to, like, get right back to your routines and get ready for the next round. Um, that's That's honestly, like... That's the full book on what I think can help you uh, uh, play a little bit better, like make things feel a little bit more normal. Like when you go from normal golf to tournament golf, like all those things are sort of aimed at putting yourself in the right like headspace so that it doesn't feel too different from a normal round. And these practices, did you learn these practices when you were in college? Did you develop them before college? How did you get to this point where you kind of had built this almost ritual around playing tournaments and trying to connect yourself at both levels? Uh, so it's, it's something I picked up over years, years and years of experience. Uh, there are elements of it that I got from people uh, like for instance, uh, Scott Fawcett from decade is a big proponent, uh, big proponent of meditation. Um, I didn't do it for a year and a half of like knowing that and knowing him. But then I started doing it because I was like, I had a really uh, rough time qualifying last fall. And, you know, I was like, some things need to change. So I was like, I'm going to start meditating. Did that. And, you know, that it was one thing I added to the ritual. But then like another thing I added to the ritual when I started college golf was really controlling what I ate because you'd be out there for 36 holes and it becomes more of a necessity, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's little things you pick up along the way. Like the sleep part I picked up when, uh, I played a USAM qualifier when I was 17 and I had to get up at three 30 in the morning to like drive there and then play my 36 and then drive home. Um, yeah, like, I realize, oh, I got to get up at 3.30, like, I need to go to sleep early. And then you, you start to think, like, you know, 
you start to include thinking about sleep into your routine. And then, you know, I've, I've heard all the science since then. It's one of the most important things you can do. Going back to those, to those rituals, you kind of mentioned post round after a tournament round, you have a routine. Um, could you go a little more in depth about that post round routine during a tournament week? Yeah, sure. And, you know, I'll, I'll qualify all this a little bit. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a routine, uh, but it's definitely like, you know, certain things that I like keep track of as a check on normalcy. You know, I, I wouldn't say that I control too hard what I'm doing, but for instance, like some things I make sure of is like, all right, did I eat some protein after the round? Right. I eat like something that's filling uh that has like good protein for recovery my like getting myself hydrated uh do i need to stretch out do i need to like use a theragun or something right so there are a lot of just little checks but i would say like the big ones are like taking a little time to decompress making sure i eat something good uh and then honestly like whatever needs to happen to get my mind and my body relaxed uh, for the next day, you know, assuming that the tournament goes on in the next day, um, whatever needs to happen there, like whatever show I've been watching, like on Netflix or something like watching that, um, you know, back, back in college, we do a lot of like playing board games and card games, like in the hotel rooms, like between rounds. So, you know, you hang out like you normally would. Uh, but, you know, the most important like boxes to check would always be like those recovery boxes. And you're talking about college there. One thing uh, I was interested in was you ended up at Carnegie Mellon. Did you always know you wanted to play college golf? Uh, and how'd you end up there? <laughs> so how I ended up there is uh, is a funny story. It's a story for another time, but, uh, I, I kind of like, didn't even know what college golf was to be honest, like the same way I didn't know, uh, how the AJGA worked. Um, I didn't even know that you had to be recruited to teams until it was like almost my senior year of high school. Uh, so I was a little behind the curve. I, uh, I emailed the coach after I got into the school actually. And I said, Hey, any chance I can get on the team? He was actually uh, not even going to email me back. Uh, this is a, you know, funny little story between the two of us. He wasn't going to email me back. Uh, but when I visited campus, I happened to meet the athletic director. And uh, for some reason, he liked me. And he called up Dan and he was like, Hey, hey, email this kid back. I like him. So, uh, we went from him not knowing I existed and not emailing me back to uh, about a month later, you know, he, you know, he watched my scores in the U.S. Open qualifier. Uh, we talked, I sent him some swing videos and he was like, all right, I've decided I'm going to give you a chance. Uh, so I was like, by the time he said he was like going to give me a chance, I had already been committed to the school for weeks. You know, so I was I was going there uh, regardless of whether or not golf would be part of it. Uh, but, you know, 
golf, I would say would be one of the most important parts of like that college experience. So I'm glad it did work out. So you talked about how, you know, Scott Fawcett and I've seen on Twitter, you engage with him and, and Lou Stagner. How did you get involved in, with those guys and with the math of, of the game and everything? Sure. Um, yeah, so I got to know them uh, basically because a little over two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, Scott ran a promo on Twitter for hitting 10,000 followers. He was like, I'm giving away a couple like free webinars and decade accounts. And, uh, you know, he was like, he was like retweet and comment uh, why like you want this. Uh, my coach, you know, sent me that tweet and he was like, hey, like, you're a math dude. You know, you'd probably have a good shot at getting one of these. Uh, so, you know, sent him a tweet. So I was like, all right. So I replied to the tweet. Uh, he saw it. He saw it, gave me the webinar. Uh, the webinar was originally supposed to be for like 30 minutes to an hour. We ended up talking for like over two hours just because, you know, I'm, I'm a math guy, right? I, I majored in, uh, not that it's any bit like applicable, uh, but like I majored in math in college, you know, math and physics. Uh, I'm going to grad school for statistics, right? So I, I'm doing a lot of quantitative things and not that, you know, the math behind playing good golf is anywhere near as complicated as, you know, undergraduate degree in math. But you know, just having that little bit of nerd in me, you know, we, we connected over that. So, um, you know, then COVID happened, uh, very shortly after, but I had one tournament before COVID and, uh, it was my like first tournament since learning decade. It was my first tournament since, uh, you know, knowing about all of this stuff, knowing about expectations. I was also like rebuilding my golf swing. Uh, and I shot, I shot my best like round of college to that point in the final round, you know, I shot, shot five under the team shot 19 under that day. It was insane. And COVID shut everything down, but I was riding that high and I had like, I had like stats from a few rounds finally. And I could like understand like what was really going on. Uh, so during COVID, you know, I, engaged with them, uh, engaged mainly with Scott at this point, uh, more and, you know, started to really, uh, connect with what's going on with the numbers and the stats and all of that. Uh, and then, you know, as time went on, uh, I, uh, let me make sure I get the timeline, right? Yeah. So then after that, that's when, uh, after COVID kind of slowed down for the first time, uh, that's when Bryson won the U.S. Open. Okay, so when Bryson won the U.S. Open, it was late 2020. I had like known this stuff, been working on, uh, working on getting comfortable with thinking about golf that way uh, for a few months at this point. And Bryson like bashed wing foot to death. Right? I mean, that was that was what he said his plan was. Uh, and he said, like, at the beginning of the week, like, it sets up for me just fine with the narrow fairways, as long as I just keep hitting driver, like, no one's going to hit these fairways. And I was like, you know what, there might be some truth to that. And it hit me like, uh, 
it hit me like the effect that fairway width has on like what it means uh for a drive to be like rewarded um and it's actually like a more subtle relationship than most people realize see like for years the like philosophy was always uh you know the narrower the fairways like the more important it is to you know hit something straight and in play and uh you know, something like that to sort of like fit the golf hole, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, this is an important lesson for uh, people like people thinking about trying to play good golf. Uh, you know, that conventional wisdom turned out to be mathematically wrong. Uh, I had this inkling when I saw Bryson won the U.S. Open by so much by hitting driver everywhere that actually the fairways were so narrow that they were playing to his advantage uh, rather than his detriment uh, because no one could hit the fairway, right? So I, I did the math behind it and I tweeted it out and I said, look, this is why Bryson won the U.S. Open. You know, you want fairways that are 30 to 35 yards wide and they had fairways that are 22 yards wide, which just, you know, whatever delta Bryson has in fairway and fairway percentage due to its length taking balls further offline um that's mitigated by the fairways being so narrow that everyone's percentage is so constrained and going down so much so uh i tweeted that out i think that's like a, a solid lesson in course management like just because you see a narrow fairway it's not time to take out the three wood or the two iron just yet like you you have to like actually go through the options properly. Um, but yeah, I tweeted that out with the math and uh, that got some attention. Uh, you know, Scott appreciated it. Uh, I think that's around the time I started talking to Lou as well. Um, so then I, I talked to both of them on a fairly regular basis and we exchanged ideas uh, about golf and, you know, about life, whatever's going on, numbers, uh, opinions on like, hey, is, is this, this sound right? You know, uh, we'll, we'll bounce all of that back and forth. So it's really good. It's really good. Uh, and it's helped my own game too, because now uh, proper course management is like second nature. That's, exa that's exactly what I was going to ask about is, so you knew the math beforehand, you knew decade beforehand, uh, and decade in general, I think Scott would say this too, it's a systematic uh, methodology for figuring out what you should and shouldn't do, but it's more of a set of principles than it is a set of strict rules. And that's the beauty of it is you can take these principles, you can go to almost any course, and if you don't get it exactly right, get it very close to right as far as uh, target, what club to hit off the tee, etc. And with your capabilities have you taken uh the math that you understand the math even you did like at winged foot have you taken that and applied that uh deeper into your tournament rounds and what has that resulted in you know i it depends what you call like deeper into my tournament rounds i mean i've i've done some funny things i'm not even gonna lie i've, I've done some funny things with the stats i've I've tried to talk about like probability distributions of making putts to try and diagnose like my putting problems. Like I, you know, I I've gone the whole nine yards. Uh, but I would say like at the end of it, like that's not, 
you know, like the result of that isn't going to be what helps me play better golf. Like I'm doing that out of curiosity and seeing if I can direct my practice a little bit. Um, I think the important thing to understand from what's going on with, uh, with the decade stuff and how it helps you play better golf is like, yeah, the, the targets and the decisions are, you know, generally pretty good, right? But even if uh, the decisions you end up making are a little bit different from the ones that Decade would prescribe, uh, the thing that really helps you play better golf is the mindset. The mindset of uh, understanding that shot patterns exist, uh, understanding that you are aiming away from the hole because of the inherent probability that you're going to hit this ball offline, right? So that way, when you hit that ball offline, it's no longer a shock to your system. You've no longer like ruined your round or whatever. Oh, I was playing so good. I was hitting laser beams and now all of a sudden it's falling apart. Like, no, uh, you hit laser beams because with like you hit a string of four laser beams in a row. And that's just because every shot, there's a certain probability that you're going to hit one that comes off really good. And uh, there's a certain probability that you do that four times in a row, regardless of how you're feeling, you know? Um, yeah, there's some correlation with how your swing's feeling that day, but, you know, letting go of the idea that one shot is dictating, like, who you are and how you're playing or even what your round's going to be, uh, just taking that it's no longer, like, one shot that you're planning for and that it's really, like, a range of outcomes. You set your expectations and your targets based on that range, and then you just accept whatever comes within that range. Sure, if you like make an uncommitted, uh, bad swing, uh, sure you can like, you know, chalk that up to the swing. But otherwise, you know, it allows you to play a lot more freely and just understand that you're like, you're going after it, and you're just it. It allows you to actually take it one shot at a time. Unlike you know, thinking of each shot like determining like where you're at for the next one, like uh, that, that's when you get into a mental trap. And taking that a little further, even uh, we talk a lot about how golf scores can sometimes define us, especially in college. You take it very seriously. A lot of times you play a bad round and you feel bad because uh, you are Daniel Hammond who shot 79 that day. And you've, not only done so bad in quotations because it's that's a normative view of it, but beyond that, you've also maybe feel like you've let uh, your team down his decade. And just this math mindset helped you uh, release that and say, you know, there are things I could do better. There are skills I need to improve, but this was essentially just the probabilities playing themselves out today. Uh, the, yeah, somewhat. I mean, it's, it's not a, a dichotomy of like you do decade, you don't feel anything. Uh, you know, it's it's not like that. It's it's something that I work on over time. Uh, the disappointment with not getting what you want out of a round is something that we all deal with. Uh, and it's something that we're all going to deal with forever. Right. But uh, I've gotten better at it. That's for sure. I remember. Um, Freshman year, I would be very dejected, even like during rounds, if I had something going and then got on 
a bad string and, uh, you know, the round didn't turn out so great or like, you know, one time, <laughs> one time, geez, I, uh, I shot like 72 in the first round of a tournament and I was playing in the final group, you know, I was playing hard. So I was like in the final group, you know, going to have a chance to win. And then I think I hit 12 greens and shot 86 the next day. And the way I felt after that round, you know, I was just like so in my head about my putting, right, that my coach made me switch putters the next day. Like it was it was really bad. You know, there is a progression from that to like that same tournament uh, this year. I played way worse, but I didn't shoot any 86s because, you know, I, I started off like on a bad on a bad streak at the beginning of the tournament, I was some like four over through three and uh, ended up shooting like a 74 or 75, like even though I didn't have my best stuff, uh, just because, you know, I was able to not let it get to me as much during the round. And then like after the round, like, sure, I didn't feel great. I also played poorly the next round and I had, you know, I had one of my worst tournaments of the season. and, you know, I was a little bit, I was a little bit, uh, sad about it for maybe 20 minutes. And then, you know, I was on the drive home, you know, I was just talking to my teammates and, uh, it was fine, you know? So it, it's, it's been like, it's been a very good like progression, but you're never going to completely get rid of the feeling. So you talked about some of your struggles with putting and I was listening to a podcast you did yesterday you talked about switching putters and and working on that so you had those two wins senior year and you must have putted pretty solid to win those tournaments so what have you done to really make your putting better so uh i i will go into what i did to make my putting better but i'll also be honest um when you say like putting solid, like that is like being generous still, um, to win those golf tournaments. Uh, so the first one I shot, I shot like eight under, right. And I did that by making 13 birdies and five bogeys, uh, which was basically birdieing most of the par fives, picking up a couple strays and then not short siding myself. And I didn't make any putts. Like, I I made a few putts, okay? You can't win a golf tournament without making any putts. And especially down the stretch, I made, like, I made uh, two, I made two really solid eight to 10 foot par putts uh, in the last, like, five holes. And then had a pretty good two putt on the last hole to get myself into a playoff. But, you know, in terms of strokes gained, it wasn't, like, crazy positive. Uh, It was, like, something on the order of like zero or like maybe one right it was it was something like that and then the second tournament was a lot of the same deal it was uh it was a par 70 so you know not as many par fives but i like i just wasn't making bogeys uh and you know if you don't need to shoot 26 under uh to win the golf tournament if you just don't make any bogeys and you're like playing solid enough that you're succeeding at not making bogeys, you're probably going to make a couple birdies just on accident. 
Um, and it's not like you don't have to get hot for that to happen. So like the, the putter never really got super hot. Um, but I did take it from something that was like a real, real weakness where I would have a lot of like minus six, minus seven type days. Um, and I would say what I like, what I did honestly was entirely just changing the putter and changing the setup. And finding something that worked uh, really well for my like visual alignment. Um, I've struggled with my eyes and my visual alignment for like a few years now. Uh, and my old putter, it was a blade. I just couldn't line it up square. Simple as that, you know? And I like, not only could I not line it up square, but I couldn't uh, get myself to be convinced that it was aimed where it actually was. Uh, and that's like any golfer who's been in that like mental loop, it's it's not a fun one to be in because you feel horrible over every putt. Um, and I lived like that for like years of college. Uh, I switched putters. I switched to a Spider X and it has a visual alignment that works for my eyes and usually my time spent in that uh in that like bad cycle of not knowing where you're aimed and not feeling like you're aimed where you know you're aimed uh the length of time in that cycle has definitely gone down so it it's like of course i've like done general putting practice too and worked on my speed and all that but like Honestly, it, it was just the alignment. Looking at something different really helped. So as far as finding a putter for your that fit your visual alignment, was that just done through trial and error? Or did you do some sort of fitting that allowed you to find that putter? Yeah, I've actually never been fitted for anything. Uh, funny story. You know, I know I should, um, obviously, right? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't everyone? Uh, but this putter... I had just come off of uh, qualifying and I had shot like nine over for six rounds because I had a million putts every single time. Like I was hitting 16 greens every day and shooting 74, like, you know, uh, and after the last round where I actually shot a 68, but I had, I had like minus four strokes gained putting. Like I hit it so well T to green and shot like, shot like three under and that was after shooting like 78 the day before where I hit I hit 15 greens and shot 78 or something like that it was just like I couldn't take it anymore so I just drove to dicks and tried every putter they had and walked out with one and uh and then I put it in play in a tournament four days later that is <laughs> That is bonkers. So you you go to Dick's, try out all the putters, you put it in play four days later. Is it still in your bag now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, haven't had much of a reason to change it. I mean, sure, I've had, like, weeks and days where I don't putt well or where I don't feel good with it. And I've hit putts with my old putter, but I can't, like, convince myself that I feel better over that putter than this putter yet. So it's still in the bag. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, and one thing I had a question about diving more into sort of, uh, your game, we've talked about putting, maybe not the strongest thing you have for you, but as long as you don't keep make a liability, then Mm -hmm. you're able to do well. And on the D three guys, 
golf podcast, which we'll link in the show notes, uh, you have a great analysis about where your game's at, and you talk about how the real strength of your game is in your ball striking. And Mm -hmm. as part of that, I heard you say earlier that you redid your swing. So are you working on your swing by yourself? And uh, in either case, what did you work on to try to make that your strength? So, um, you know, it's, it's funny you say work on it to make it my strength. Um, it already was my strength before I made the swing changes. Um, the thing I made the swing changes for uh, had more to do with club face control, especially with a driver. Um, just because, uh, you know, I, you know, I've never had an instructor. Uh, so I guess I should mention that I'm working on this on my own. Uh, I've never had an instructor I've taken. I could count on my hands how many lessons I've had. Uh, and the most I've had with one person was three. So, you know, I've been working on this alone. Uh, so because of that, and I didn't even really take videos or, and there were no like good players or knowledgeable people around where I grew up. So I had developed a lot of early extension, like a lot of early extension. And, uh, my sophomore year of college, we got an assistant coach who's very knowledgeable about the swing. Uh, and you know, we, we like started talking about things and I started to understand like what was going on, like at a very technical level in my swing. And I was like, all right, we're gonna, you know, we're going to do something about this. And it was a big, long process. Um, it's still going on, but you know, the, the things I'm working on are, you know, for instance, I'm still like trying to get the hands in front of the body, like faster. Um, so that, you know, I don't have to do a late shallowing move. Um, you know, one of the things like, you know, the difference in your first move with your hands, between getting them in front of your body, like moving them out in front of your body versus dropping them down behind you. Um, Sure, it has the effect on like swing path of hitting a draw versus hitting a cut. Um, But it also like something people don't think about is that the club head has inertia, right? Club head has inertia. So if you drop the hands, it steepens the shaft, right? Because the head wants to stay in the the same spot. So, just working on, you know, the things that have trickle down effects, uh, that lead to like, you know, the early extension is a late shallowing move that's happening because the hands are back here and the, like, and the shaft is upright. So if I'm going to fix that thing that's going on in my pivot, I'm going to have to, you know, fix what's going on in my transition. And it's just, you know, problem solving like that. And I've been at it for a while, but you know, my swing's in a much better place now and I'm, you know, driving it better and, uh, hitting it, hitting it with the irons, like about the same. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like, I didn't turn a weakness into a strength. I would say I definitely improved my driving accuracy, uh, especially in terms of balls that end up in play. Um, you know, I'm pretty reliable off the tee now, whereas before I'd hit a few foul balls, uh, but like the thing, like that, that's really what it did. Uh, but like, I always had the ability to hit it in the middle of the club face, which I would say is like 
the most important thing. And I just got that from the range when I was a junior golfer, you know? Yeah. And also in that podcast, something you'd said tying in with his ball striking is that you really had improved your mental preparation before tournaments. There were two things that you're working on and that was getting more distance and mental preparation. Uh, and it's, you touched on it with meditation, but could you walk us through uh, both of those, why you try to improve both of those areas and what you did to improve both those areas? Sure. Um, so I'll start with mental preparation. Um, so the mental preparation I was talking about on that podcast, so I recorded that in like November last year. Uh, so we had just come off the fall season and you know me i was used to being nowhere on anywhere uh, anyone's radar in the rankings uh you know just you know plugging along going to the tournaments kind of being an npc right uh now all of a sudden i had uh i had won a tournament my worst finish of the fall was eighth i had three top fives you know in four tournaments and i was just like whoa, like now people are texting me asking if I'm turning pro, you know? Uh, and it was just a different world to be living in. And so I needed to take some time reflecting on how different that was going to feel the next time I had a scorecard in my hand, right? Um, you know, on top of the normal, like getting your mind ready for competition, which was something that I had never like, put too much effort into before that fall. Uh, so I was, I was adding to like the knowledge I had already gained somewhat on, uh, on getting my mind ready for competition. I was adding to that now, like we're going to try to, we're going to try to go through some situations and try and like see how I would expect to feel and what my response is going to be in like different situations and just like plan ahead so that when I've, get on the golf course and I'm three over through four, you know, my first tournament back in the spring, which I was, you know, I was three over through four hitting nothing but snipe hooks. Right. How, like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting number two in the golf stat rankings and, you know, I I'm on watch lists and like, I have all this pressure and now I'm three over through four. How am I going to respond to that? Well, you know, luckily I had done some preparation, uh, for how I'd feel and, uh, I was able to correct it and finish the tournament in the top 10. Right. So, it, you know, that, that's, uh, it, it may sound like pretty simple and vague what I'm saying. Uh, but you know, given enough time, uh, if you really meditate on it well and, uh, and understand how you're going to feel, it can be helpful. Um, the other one was distance. Uh, the distance was both like for my golf game and also like personal. Uh, so personally, I've been going through some stuff. I lost a bunch of weight. Uh, I wasn't at my peak shape, uh, you know, mentally or physically. So I was like, I need to get in the gym. I need to put on some weight. And if I'm going to put on some weight, I need to like, I'm going to put on some speed while I'm at it. Uh, you know, when I, when we hit winter break, 
uh, I hadn't like touched a club very much in the last couple of months and I hadn't gone to the gym much. Uh, I was like, I was down to like the least I had weighed in like four years and my ball speed had dipped to like 161. Okay. Like me taking a solid rip at it was like 161, which is like, not going to say pathetic, but like it's pathetic. Right. Um, so I was like, we need to do something about that. And, uh, so I just went to the gym every day, uh, consistent effort, you know, obviously being smart about what I'm working on. So my body is responding properly and building muscle. Um, but I was doing, I was going to the gym every day, doing my speed sticks every other day. Um, and just being very consistent about it and eating, uh, eating a lot. Uh, and then once we got back to school and I could get back in the simulator, it was taking drivers and is like, it's funny, our, our team like has a little bit of a culture that helps this, but you know, I, I would take drivers and I would spend time just trying to hit them as hard as I possibly could. Uh, like we got a track man, which has the, which has the like fractional miles per hour of ball speed. Okay. Having fractional miles an hour of ball speed was such a like huge thing for me because if I had, if I had like set the previous day, like 174.1 as a new PR, right? Well, the next day I can shoot for 174.2, right? Right. And I'm going to like keep hitting this driver as hard as I can until I get one that says 174.2, right? And then the next day I'm sitting in there. Well, well, it turns out the previous day I didn't get 174.2. I got 174.6, right? Because I caught a hot one. Then the next day I'm going after 0.7, right? And you can kind of feed off of yourself like that. Like have those sessions every uh, every couple of days, little competition with your teammates uh, about like, no, nah, I bet I can hit it like harder than you. And they're like, Oh, you think you're a huge boy? Like I've been in the gym and then like, you know, you're, you're like trading drivers back, back and forth, trying to hit them like as hard as you can. And it's so important for building speed just to like try and hit things hard. Uh, so that, that was like a really important part of the speed training. So in a, in a span of literally like under six weeks, um, I went from my speed record or like my speed where it was not record. I had been, I had been in the one seventies before, uh, but I went from like one sixty one to my, uh, my PR at the end of that six weeks was one seventy eight point nine. So looking forward with your golf career, this year you won the Byron Nelson Award, and yes. with that you receive an exemption into next year's AT and T. Byron Nelson, do you are you looking to turn professional for that event, or what are you thinking for that? So my current plan, in all honesty, is you know probably stay amateur. Um, you know I'm going to grad school uh, in the fall. I'm you know starting a PhD. What effect that'll have on my golf game remains to be seen. You know I could embarrass myself out there at the Byron Nelson. Who knows? I mean like. I don't know. I heard, I heard the course is gettable. So, you know, I can scrape it around even par, miss the cut, but like, you know, at least be like, all right, he shot even par, you know, I think I'll be able to do that maybe. 
Uh, but you know, I'm starting grad school, so it's not really feasible to be playing professional unless I were to like start doing grad school part time. Uh, and even then it would be like really difficult. Uh, and I'm going to be living in New York City, which, you know, there it makes it hard to work on your game. Uh, but there are also like a lot of really good amateur events around there that like if I'm around, I, I just want to play golf. You know, I like, yes, I have I have some self-belief. OK, but I know I'm not Tiger Woods. OK, I, like I know I'm not Scotty Scheffler uh, who came through the junior ranks like you know, scorched earth, like beating everyone by a million and then did that in college and then went to the pros and now he's doing it in the pros. Like I'm not that. Okay. Um, I could maybe make it make a living, maybe even make it to the tour if I worked hard enough, but, uh, I'm not a generational talent. So, you know, I'm content, like playing high level golf, uh, as long as I can keep doing that in whatever capacity I can, obviously I'm going to do the best I can. And hopefully there are more big events in the future. Um, and after grad school, if I'm still playing well, maybe I'll give it a shot. But uh, right now, right now the plan is to probably stay amateur just to keep the access open for like playing as much like really good golf as I can uh, while I'm good at it. That makes sense. Part of that, uh, that you said really resonated with me as we talked with uh, another guy, Charlie Harrison played at Wake Forest, ended up going on a big break. You might've seen him at some point. Um, and there's a calculus involved with everything. And he said similar thing where he played four years of pro and he knew he wasn't going to be, he's not a generational talent. If he got it out there, he was going to be digging it out of the dirt. And mm-hmm. even then, like there are a lot of good alternatives. And in your case, you're, too humble to say it, but you're a really smart guy uh, and sort of a savant in many ways. I've, I saw your violin videos. Uh, I mean, you have oh multi-talented to say the least. And so when it comes to uh, deciding whether you're going to play a pro, you have a lot of great options in front of you besides that. And it makes sense not to go that route uh, for any reason in general, but especially for that reason. It, but going forward, playing in that tournament, I imagine you'll feel a lot of nerves, especially probably not playing as much competitive golf as before. Will you be able to draw back on other experiences? And in particular, what I want to know is what time did you feel the most nerves on the golf course and what have you learned from that? Yeah. So um, the first thing I'm going to draw upon is uh, all the expectation management, uh, especially you know, I'm going to, you know, this is going to sound silly, but, you know, conditional expectation, it's a, it's a thing in probability. It's just your expectation conditioned on something. Well, my expectation conditioned on standing on the first tee of a PGA tour event is a snipe hook that could very well go out of play. And I'm prepared for that. I'm mentally prepared to make double on the first hole. It's fine. Um, and, you know, there's there's a history of uh, stuff to go back to. So I'll, I'll go back to what made me feel the heat the most noticeably the first time was uh, when I was trying to win my first college tournament. And, uh, you know, I, I, 
I had gotten out of the habit at looking at golf stat, you know, through my years of college. I just like generally don't look at my phone while I'm playing golf. Uh, and the same was during college golf. Like I wouldn't look at the leaderboard. Well, I knew going into the final round, I was like three back and I was sitting a couple under on the round uh, with six holes to play. And I was going to a reachable par five. I was like, I wonder what the lead's at. And then, uh, you know, I looked and I was like, oh, I'm one back playing a reachable par five. And then it, all of a sudden, you know, everything, uh, everything felt a little different. Um, I birdied that par five, but then played like the most scrappy next three holes in a row that like you've ever seen. Like I hit one on, uh, yeah, so we were, we were shotgunned out there. So I was finishing on hole five, uh, but on three, uh, on three, yeah, it's hardest hole in the course in terms of the tee shot, you know, there's OB up the right, um, some pretty like big trees up the left but it was like kind of open in there but there was a creek in front of the green so if you hit it in those trees and didn't get lucky like you weren't hitting the green um and the play you know all week uh was to hit it up the left edge of the fairway if you pull one in the trees like whatever you know it's part of your shot pattern but at least it's never going OB. Like you aim there and you just make a committed swing. Like it will never go OB. Like you would have to hit a terrible golf shot. Right. And I had successfully navigated that tee shot three times in a row. And I, and all of a sudden I just, you know, tightened up and made a not very committed swing and hit it like, I swear, a hundred yards left. Like, you know, it would have been so far out of play if there were anything that were out of play on the left side. And uh, I ended up then like taking like a pitching wedge from like 130 and trying to hit it straight up in the air over this tree, like short of the green. Made like a 10 footer for par, which like, I don't know how I did that. Like I was shaking, but you know, things were starting to kind of come unraveled a little bit. Um when we got to five, I needed a par to get into a playoff and a, you know, birdie to win it. Standing in the middle of the fairway with a pitching wedge, I laid the sod over it, chunked it short of the green. Uh, ended up like really nice two putt from the front fringe over a knob. But, you know, we got to the playoff and I was still like, I was feeling it even more. And uh, I hit a combination of hooks and chunks all the way to the win. Um, you know, I like I think I hit my first solid golf shot of the playoff on the fourth playoff hole. And it like my arms just felt like jelly. Um so I'll like <laughs> I'll remember what that feels like, but I don't know if I have the solution yet. Just because uh you know, I've I've felt that some, but I haven't felt it to that degree since then. Even when I was like going for my second win. Um, I felt it some, but that's because like, I realized I was like leading and then this guy made two birdies. So then I was not leading. And then I made three birdies in a row, but he made two birdies. So then we were like, then we were tied. And then like, and then he made like a, he made a bogey and I made a birdie. And then it was like pretty much over. I didn't feel it the same way. Like I felt some, but I, I didn't feel it the same way. Um, or even like, I don't know, there, 
there there was a there was another time actually you know at the end of the fall where i was uh i had shot 65 in the second round to kind of get sort of into contention uh but i was still like four or five back going to the final round and uh i was sitting six under through 12 and i was like huh i wonder where i'm at because the the other kid in my group who'd started like a couple shots in front of me was like five under through 12 i was like i wonder like where we're at and we were like you know two horse race running away from the from the field and i was like uh now i feel it and then i made a quick double uh made a quick double, followed it up with two birdies, but, you know, ended up losing by one just because, you know, I like, I'm not going to pretend I'm the expert in uh, handling how it feels, but I think that's why, like, it goes back to getting the scorecard in hand, getting yourself in those situations just so you know how it feels. Uh, I wouldn't say I've done it enough to be an expert in it, but, you know, I think just getting the uh, comfort there and, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to draw on those experiences, but I don't have that many of them. I can relate to that, except for uh, never felt those exact nerves uh, being in contention that much because I was not in contention for many things many times. Uh, but drawing on not just that experience, you said during that you had a shot where you hit a pitching wedge over a tree. And this is a super niche question. Uh, mm-hmm. And something that I did as a junior, see adults do now and still am tempted to do a lot is when you put it in the trees, it's taking on the riskiest shot possible to try to make up for it. Um, And in particular, it seems so easy uh, to do that. And it happens like in the case that we're talking about, even when you're playing good mathematical golf sometimes you're going to put one in the trees because that's the better side to miss on and it's still better to hit that club has how has that helped inform you as to being patient and comfortable hitting out uh the most the the best way or the more strategic way yeah yeah sure uh it's a great question and uh actually i'll point out like that that problem you were mentioning it happened to cam smith this last weekend even though he won the open all right don't forget on saturday uh on number 13 he ended up like on the side of that bunker and decided to try to baseball swing it standing in the bunker over like gorse bushes and and fescue like he had like 180 or something you know he was trying to hit like a full iron shot baseball swinging uh standing in a bunker you know even like no matter how good you are the geometry doesn't even work like the heel's gonna dig heel's gonna dig you have to take like if you're gonna do that right you have to take like a a four iron and open up the face and like hit like a flop slice but then the contact gets impossible like it's it's like it's not a shot that you can hit okay and he was just like i need to hit this shot like no one's immune from that okay um but like knowing the math like certainly has helped now i'll qualify this i take on some shots you know the math doesn't say never take on a shot what the math says is that 
if even if you just don't take on a shot, like pitching out sideways almost never loses you like significant shots. Okay? Like if you can pitch it out, like if you're a PGA tour player, like just because I know these numbers sort of the best, if you're like in the trees anywhere and you can pitch it out to somewhere around like 80 to 120 yards. Like if you can pitch it out to that, that will be like a zero strokes game shot, you know? So anything you can do past that is just gravy, right? Like anything you can do, like that's not to say that you can't do other things, but like just understanding that you always have that base option. Like, yeah, you already screwed up the tee shot. All right. Those strokes are gone. You lost them. You know, strokes gain shows that. All right, what are you going to do from here? Well, you always have, like, it sounds like a cop-out. It kind of is a cop-out, but it's a cop-out that gets you zero strokes gain. So you want to, like, only take on shots that you know you can get in a better place than 80 to 120 yards in the fairway. Um, So, for example, that pitching wedge over the tree, um, you know, when I evaluate a situation... I know I got the sauce, right? I, you know, everyone's got like a little bit of uh, shot making ability. Um, I grew up playing golf in a way where I can hit a lot of golf shots. And I knew I had that shot. And I knew provided I didn't just like blade it into the tree, I would get up over the tree and I'd have plenty to cover the creek, even if it didn't get all the way back to the flag, as long as I just, you know, open up that face and lean back and catch it clean right so it was it was a decision that i made that was like a little bit riskier than just punching out sideways uh but i think the important thing to remember is like when you have opportunities that present themselves like that you have to be like sure that it's going to be better than that punch out to 100 yards so kind of building off that um you mentioned you know all these strokes gain numbers kind of off the top of your head when you're actually in a tournament in your pre-shot routine, do you talk yourself through these numbers or how do you talk yourself through a shot on the course? I would say uh, the way the numbers manifest themselves in my pre-shot routine is my, uh, my general feeling of anxiety over the shot. I think that's like what they control. You know, if I'm over a six iron, I'm like, oh crap, I might make a bogey. If I'm over a wedge, I'm like, yeah, I might make a birdie. You know, it's like sort of a gut feeling that's there that represents the numbers. But I'm not thinking about the numbers at all other than my yardage, uh, you know. So when I'm when I'm talking through a shot like to myself, I guess. What I'm doing uh, as I'm like walking up to the ball, you know, I'm doing a lot of the work before I get to the ball like i'm feeling what the wind's doing i'm i'm seeing what the slopes are like how long it's gonna play compared to the actual yardage and sort of getting prepared for what the yardage will actually be i usually have a good idea before i get to the ball then i laser it usually confirms the yardage that i was gonna play it and then uh you know i i just you know pick my club. I, I, I try to make sure that I'm always like over clubbing rather than under clubbing. Uh, 
that's just like sort of how I play. Like I take a lot of partial swings. I don't swing hard at a lot of iron shots. Um, just to make sure that I can actually center my uh, shot pattern like in the wide direction, right? In the in the distance direction. Uh, if you just hit a club that barely gets to where you want to center your shot pattern, well, then you're not centering your shot pattern there, right? So uh, that's just a little aside. So I make sure that I have enough club to at least cover the number that I want to hit it. Uh, and so I sort of just see a shot. I don't know, that that part's like unconscious, but I, I sort of see a shot. Um, I see a target. Sometimes I'm very conscious about the target, but other times if it's like a it's like a three iron from like 240 and there's like trouble somewhere. Like I'm I'm kind of like aiming somewhere like nebulous, I guess, which isn't the greatest habit, but like I'm hitting it over there, you know what I mean? But I have like a general like shape and a general type of swing that I'm going to put on it. And then once I get over the ball, all I'm thinking about is, um, you know, I'm trying to align and then I'm just thinking about contact. It's all like then it then it's just contact uh, until I hit the ball um, or whatever swing thoughts I have. But I'm always like just looking for contact. And if I make good contact and I've done my job, the rest of it's just variance, you know? Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, I have two questions left for you. Um, the first one is less about tournament golf and more just uh, more personal. And that I'm interested to see what's the best shot you can remember hitting. <laughs> Well, okay, so there there's a difference in like what you mean by best shot necessarily, right? So there there have been great shots that I've hit. There have been great shots that I've hit under circumstances. I mean, there have been like legitimately just like perfect golf shots that I've hit that didn't like mean anything. I could go through those, but I think they're a little bit uh less significant i would say the best one i ever hit under circumstances was i was in a playoff uh for the 2017 white deer invitational now this is a like club level golf tournament right mm -hmm. uh and i was still like a junior golfer and uh I was in a playoff it was a it was a four ball tournament my partner was out of the hole other team was in for par and my ball backed up against the collar, okay? So I was up against the collar like 25 feet away. And uh, I was sitting there like thinking, what should I do with this ball? And I had a wedge out. And then like, you know, right as it was my turn, you know, and the best part was there was like a small gallery around too. I like took out my putter. Uh, I took out my putter and then I saw people going like this, like, oh, he's going to putt that. And then right before it was my turn to hit, I just, like, flipped it 90 degrees. Uh, I bopped it with a toe and made it <laughs> uh, to win the tournament. And uh, I have not heard the end of that shot. Uh, you know, I still hear it every once in a while because, you know, the, the, guys that, uh, the guys that we ended up beating, uh, I play with them, like, a decent amount whenever I'm home. And, uh, yeah, I have not heard the end of that shot. You know, it's, it's just like, 
one of those things. Of course, there was luck involved with it going in, but like, you know, with the pressure of a lot of pro shop credit on the line, you know, you know, hitting hitting that tiny little uh that tiny little toe on that putter and getting it to come out right and go in the hole. That was that was something. That is that's legendary. Um that fits well with our last question. Um in that you took some experience from uh different areas and have been able to uh incorporate it with good memories of confidence. If you could go back to yourself when you were younger and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? Um, let's see. I think, I think it would, hmm. I don't, I don't know. I'm between a couple of things. So, so one thing is, uh, I definitely like would tell myself to get my, uh, my headspace and my temper figured out a lot faster. Um, getting to the point where that's no longer a huge issue took a lot of work, a lot more work and time than it should have. And I would have been a better golfer the whole way and maybe ended up exponentially further forward in my golf career. Like had I known that from a young age, uh, not that everyone isn't telling you as a kid, like to stop being mad, but actually internalizing that and uh, internalizing why it is uh, that you shouldn't be mad and how to control yourself when you're starting to feel a little mad, uh, you know, and why it is that you're even mad in the first place. You know, understanding all of those things uh, would have gone a very long way, in my opinion, uh, just because, like, I didn't even, I, I didn't understand that, like, oh, I pushed my six iron 10 feet right of my target, like boo hoo, like that's still like, you almost hit right on your target. Right. And I would be sitting there like aimed at tucked pins and then pushing it a little bit and like missing the green and making an auto bogey and not understanding that like, that was like, I brought that possibility into play when I aimed it at the flag, right? So it, it's not something to start slamming your club over, right? So I, I think that would probably be the biggest one that I would want to address with myself. And, and I think it would have snowballed into some other good things. That makes sense. Well, we appreciate it. Where can people find you? If they want to reach out to you on social media or anything like that. For sure. Uh, you can find me. My my at is the same on like all the platforms, I guess. Uh, so I'm at Free Willy with three L's and four Y's. I know it's a, it's a little confusing. It's a name some girl gave me in eighth grade. And I just like it's been my at ever since then. Just never changed it. Uh, so Free Willy with three L's and four Y's uh, for like a lot of golf related content. Uh, I'm usually on Twitter, like in the golf Twitter space quite a lot. Uh, got any questions about like analysis stuff or golf swing or like playing uh, playing good golf. Like I'll always answer the best I can. I try to like reply to pretty much everything that comes my way. So you got anything, send it my way. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. 
You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at tournamentcode. As always, feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at thetournamentcode.com and cooper at thetournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper into what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 